Hello and welcome to the Farm Reform Podcast. I'm your host, Jonah Comstock. On August 24th of this year, Amazon shut down its Amazon Care uh, telehealth slash employer healthcare operation. While uh, the company is still buying one medical group and still seems to be involved in healthcare, it was just the latest example of a fairly common theme in healthcare where a big tech company gets in and, uh, as happened last year with another Amazon venture haven, uh, tries its best and ends up getting out again. Um, There's been quite a bit written about this uh, but I have with me today uh, a uh, an expert on uh, big tech and healthcare, among other things, uh, Susan Lang, CEO of XIL Health. Welcome to the show, Susan. Thank you, Jonah. It's great to be here. So uh, let's start with you first. Tell me a little bit about your background and uh, where you come at this kind of question of can big tech make it in healthcare from? Sure. So I have one of those folks who's just been around a long time. I spent 22 years running hospital systems and then moved over to the drug supply chain and was an executive at Express Scripts. However, about five years ago, our consulting firm started working with tech startups in healthcare. And what we found is we would get calls from the Microsoft guys that all left together and wanted to start a company or, or maybe a pharmacy benefit manager or some other technology company in the drug supply chain. And then we had the group from IBM and then we had the group from Amazon. And then, you know, so what you find is as people leave some of these large companies, because they get so big, innovation takes a lot longer and they want to move quicker. They uh, create their own companies, go out and get funding and then try to penetrate healthcare as a much smaller entity. So I spent three years with Blink Health in New York. They were a client of ours, and I was also their chief strategy officer, another health tech company. Um, so I've seen this now from multiple sort of angles of how this works sort of in the health space. So before we get into the kind of big trend questions, uh, in case people didn't hear or have forgotten since August, um, give us a, a quick rundown of what's going on with Amazon and what happened with, with Amazon Care. Yeah. So I think if we start, I'm going to start just slightly uh, further back from that, Jonah. I'm going to start with their PillPack acquisition. Sure. Yeah. It's a perfect place. So PillPack acquisition, about $750 million acquisition in 2018, um, now has morphed into Amazon Pharmacy. That Amazon Pharmacy is just another pharmacy in a PBM network, just like Rite Aid or Walgreens or anyone else. They're just in the network for employer-sponsored care run by uh, the pharmacy benefit managers, the top three being, you know, Caremart, CVS, uh, Aetna, Express Scripts, Cigna, and Optum United Healthcare. So they play now in the provider space as a licensed pharmacy. So that was PillPack. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion about how has PillPack changed the industry. There was a lot of buzz that they could, and they would take scripts away from retail pharmacies. We haven't seen any of that. So I don't know their forward-moving plan, but I will tell you it's not been disruptive right now where they sit in the industry sort of three years, almost four years later. Okay, so that's the first thing. Then they went, they did go to Haven. That we didn't expect to last because getting three large Fortune 100 companies together to agree on anything would just be difficult. (laughs) That in and of itself, I think, is difficult beside the technology issue. Then they moved into Amazon Care, which they put together as a primary care, sort of an extended primary care group model. It had telehealth in there. They were talking about physical therapy in there on site for their own employees. Uh, They found that they couldn't make the economics work. They also uh, placed in that offering 
at-home visits through a care center physician to your house, there is no economics on the planet that will make that efficient, sending people to people's homes when they're sick. It's just not, not possible. Everything in healthcare is about aggregating volume and aggregating volume gets you to the economics that make it sustainable. So they shut that down this year. And at the same time, almost identically announced the acquisition of One Medical for $3.9 billion. Primary care concierge offering, looking at value-based healthcare, which is health outcomes in uh, about 200 markets. So if you think about it, there's about 380 markets, key markets in the United States. They're, they're in about 200 of those markets. So they just announced that this year. So that's sort of the history of where they've gone in the last four years. Yeah. And one medical group, of course, famously uh, technology-driven primary care, not, not virtual primary care purely, but, but sort of a tech-first approach over there. Technology-driven, but also on-site concierge medicine. So they, they actually now, so if you think about it's complicated to run employee-based healthcare for their own employees. Now they're sort of in this space where they're still doing on-site care with primary care, which I think is very complex because primary care has become the gatekeeper again. So whether or not you can get the synergies they think they want out of the technology is going to, you know, we're going to see if that actually works or not. Um, But yeah, they, they decided to go deeper into healthcare, in my opinion, not sort of back away from healthcare. So what's going on here? Uh, When, especially like when it comes to these these ventures that um, and you've kind of laid out three here that didn't quite pan out. Amazon Pharmacy arguably is is successful, but not disruptive. The other two were shelved and we're not sure what's going to happen with the acquisition. Um, and I should point out, this is not super uncommon. This is not Amazon isn't the only tech company we hear this story about, right? Going way back to Google Health in, in the 2000s and and uh, Microsoft Health Vault, uh, you know, various times. It, oh, there's all, yeah, there, there's, yeah. and Google jumped in, uh, Google jumped into even um, at-home care and, you know, uh, smart homes, and then they jumped into long-term care, you know, so there've been a lot of these sort of in and outs, sort of testing the market. So what happens? What is so challenging about healthcare that, um, uh, so often uh, tech companies decide, you know, to, to cut their losses or to reposition uh, after, after these attempts. So I think there's a couple of things that are really critical. I think the first issue is you have a $4 trillion industry. So if you're a big, mature company and you're trying to fund your earnings, you got to look for growth. So for them to move into the space, it's a huge growth space, right? So weather's poor economies, fairly well, whether it's economic downturns fairly well, because people still need healthcare. So I think from that perspective, it's super attractive. If you think about the U.S. healthcare system, the U.S. healthcare system is larger than about 195 economies in the world. So just that alone makes it an attractive thing to jump into, right? So I think that's the first thing. The second issue is, the that's why it's attractive. The barrier is it's a highly consolidated market. You have about 46 Fortune 100 companies that dominate the healthcare space. They are not making room for you, right? They're not making room for anybody disruptive. They're not making room for you to jump in. And also, a lot of those companies were very slow in the uptake of technology, but that has now accelerated. So if you think about the older companies that have been here, so the CVSs or the Walgreens or the Walmarts or the Pfizers or whomever else is in that space, they now all have innovation arms. They are now making their own private investments. So they're also accelerating. So at one point, it probably was very attractive. You're looking for profit pools. Where are the profit pools in healthcare? So you can pull those strings of profit pool away. 
but you're going to get blocked by these big guys who are not going to make room for you. And it's highly regulated. And then the third issue is it's very fractured to sell anything into the market if you're looking at employer-sponsored care. You're dealing with brokers in every single community, benefit consultants. It's a very complicated process, which I think is what they found out with Haven, to penetrate the broker community and sell to smaller mid-sized groups unless you can go to the really large guys, in which case you're dealing with benefit consultants. So I think it's it just enormously, I think people underestimate how enormously complex and fragmented healthcare is. That's my opinion about almost anybody who's jumped in. The comments we typically get when they call us to do consulting is we, we could not imagine it was this complicated or difficult. We hear that from everybody. Yeah. Um, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. So there's a few different pieces there, right? Uh, I, um, the other one I, I just wonder is like, um, you know, is it the stakes of healthcare that are involved? You know, like uh, the, you know, I guess the like life or death thing, or is that, I guess maybe that's something you're, you're prepared for when you go in. But I don't, unless they're dealing, unless you're, so the life or death thing. So when I was running hospitals, you feel that every day. So if you're at a hospital, obviously you're making decisions, you feel that every day. You don't feel that in a doctor's office every day. If you're primary care, you're probably not that you're not dealing with that. You could have somebody that could stroke or have a heart attack or I'm not suggesting that, but most of your patients are stable, right? Yeah. Not yeah. all of them, but most of them. So you don't really feel that if you're in the drug supply chain. So if you think about like where Mark Cuban jumped or where Amazon first jumped, which is PillPack, which is drug supply chain, they're not, they're dealing with uh, the fragile patients. There would be a very small amount of patients that are on specialty meds, biologics would be maybe you'd have some fragile patients, but I would tell you at my time at Express Scripts, you never felt the pressure of it's life and death. Not ever. Not that we didn't have um, circumstances like that, but overall in the amount of transactions you're doing, it's a transaction company. It's not a caregiving company. Where Amazon has jumped in now is to actually provide care. That is a lot harder to make work. It's a lot harder to be profitable because aggregating volume is really difficult in just you know, it's community by community when you're doing that, right? To create these national networks. So I think they're just in a very complicated part of this business right now. It feels like the tech companies see the incumbents doing kind of what looks like doing badly from the outside, right? Because our, our healthcare system is full of inefficiencies and they say, you know, tech is good at fixing inefficiencies. So we're going to go in and do it better. And, um, you know, that would be great if it worked, right? <laughs> because it is an inefficient system. But it turns out uh, all of these inefficiencies stem from, uh, you know, reasonable sort of uh, but but onerous regulations and, and processes. Uh, so that's just it's really interesting to me that, you know, really, really smart people still kind of underestimate the, the complexity and the difficulty of healthcare. Would you say that's a fair characterization? <laughs> I think it's fair. And I think to your point, what happens is it's not a transaction when you're dealing with people's lives and their care. So for instance, we also own physical therapy. One of the things XIL Health does is we own physical therapy companies. Also, we own clinics, but not everybody responds to treatment the same way. So you can put people into a protocol, but there will be outliers. You know, the way your body responds to mine, it can't be as precise as I'm building code or I'm creating, you know, a widget. We just can't, I, you know, I can't 3D print your health, right? So I think from that perspective, 
there's so much that technology can add. 3D printing is one of them, right? It's, it's been phenomenal. It's going to be phenomenal when we do, we do 3D printing now before we do open heart surgeries. We do it to, for transplants to document the structures of the heart and all these. So there's lots of places where I think technology has efficiency. What is difficult is changing the flow today of how anything works. So part of it is that some of the inefficiencies are historic, so they don't work anymore. So think about a doctor's practice. A doctor's practice was not set up to push, you know, hundreds of patients through a week, right? That's not what it was set up to do. So it doesn't actually work right, mm-hmm. right? Same thing with hospitals. Hospitals were never set up to take care of 100% of your care. We thought back in the day, your family did that, right? Now it's falling to the healthcare system. So some of these inefficiencies actually cross over some of what's happening in our culture. And there's, we don't have a good answer for that. We don't have a good answer for determinants of health. We don't have a good answer for why there's disparities in, um, you know, between minority patients and, and white patients. There's a lot of things we don't have answers for. So I think what happens with technology, they come in and you have to pick a small issue and focus on that because if you go too broad, it's really overwhelming. And I think, and then incrementally, you can actually start to make change, right? So that's, if you think about Walmart, Walmart just shut down their clinics, right? They, they had dedicated $20 billion to building out 200 clinics in the next five years. And their senior staff came in and said, we're not going to do it. We, we can't, it's not profitable. We can't figure it out. And so they just pulled back on their strategy also. So you're seeing this with some of the larger companies that are newer into the space, for all the reasons that we just talked about, the regulation, the inefficiencies, the historic complexity that is very difficult to penetrate. You know, I just, I think it's really hard. Yeah. Payment complexity too, of course. Oh my God. Reimbursement is crazy. And then I think the, the thing that I talk a lot about is I think for these tech companies to really win, I think the uh, magic sauce, if you will, is combining these, these technology folks that really think differently. So part of the problem with dealing with people that have been in healthcare for a long time, like myself, is we will think of it the way we've always thought about it to some extent, right? So if you bring in technology people and you merge them with really deep healthcare expertise and make so you have some uh, subject matter experts in there, I think that's where the magic can happen. They need to learn from each other and how to figure out a new way. And frequently what you get is you get healthcare people that really don't want anybody else coming in and tell them what to do. And you get technology people that think they know better and don't listen to the healthcare people of what's already happened. So I think there's a little disconnect there in the communication sometimes. So I want to get back to talking about what does work. But before I do, I wanted to just um, clarify one point you mentioned um, in in your last answer. Uh, When it comes to you said, you know, if you focus on one small thing, that might be the way to move forward. But of course, the system is so interconnected that, you know, it's hard to imagine sort of starting from scratch and how to do one thing and really nailing that one thing without coming into all the ways that that one thing interacts with all the other inefficient systems, right? That's when now we're back on payment, we're back on regulatory. So what's the, I mean, what's the fix there? How can you, how can you be focused, um, you know, how can you, I guess it's like, it's like building an airplane one piece at a time while it's still flying. How do you do it? <laughs> no, I think it's like, I really think it's like having one airplane and building a fleet, right? So how do you expand? So if you think about what Mark Cuban is doing right now, so Mark came out with a very broad announcement. Initially, he was going to manufacture drugs. This was a year and a half ago, two years ago. Then he turned to, he was going to reduce the cost of drugs and he did it, now he's doing it through a pharmacy, right? When he was going to manufacture, he was starting with a very small group. 
when he's doing it as a pharmacy, he also has actually a small group compared to how many drugs are out there. He's changed the business model twice. Now he's partnering with people. So as he backs into these complexities, he says, okay, if I've got to have a PBM for distribution or if I need a mail order facility, I'm gonna, I will partner with TruePill. I will not try to do that myself. If I need to uh, manage my drug supply chain, I'll bring in a wholesaler. I can't do that myself. So, I mean, part of this is not wanting to control everything, whereas I think sometimes the big tech companies coming in, they think they can control everything from scratch themselves. Almost impossible. So if you partner with the best in breed that you can find out there, at least for five years, you learn everything, you get the experience, then you can decide which one of those things can you move into and either build or buy yourself. I do think that's something that should be considered. So let's talk about things that have worked, right? Because I mean, we can cherry pick and see all these examples of tech entering into healthcare and going badly, but it's not fair if you don't also see, you know, where, where there's been success. Um, the one that comes to my mind is I think some of the stuff Apple's done with health records has been somewhat successful and with the Apple Watch and, you know, getting sensors onto everyone's wrists and then using those in a sort of root, at least rudimentary uh, preventative health kind of way. Um, but what, what else? I mean, what do you point to when you say this is someone who's who's approached it right? It sounds like you're a pretty bullish on Cuban. Um, so I, here's what I think about Cuban. I think right now he's not disruptive, but I think he's got a... a, a re- ridiculously successful branding machine, right? So he's got PR out there every day. I see every day. So the things he's doing are not particularly innovative. There's every one of us, including ourselves, are doing part of what he's talking about. Um, but I think lending his name to that, maybe he'll bring those pieces together in a different way. We, we can't see that yet. I don't see evidence of that yet, but potentially he could disrupt down the road. He's not, he's not anywhere close to that right now. He's too small and he's still putting pieces together. So that's a Cuban thing. I think your example of wearables is a big deal. So wearables, what you're talking about the Apple watch, but it's not just Apple. It's also the FDA now approving sort of watches and other things for true diagnostics, whether that is, you know, doing an EKG, right? The, the, there's a little device where you just put your fingers on the device and you can take your EKG. Wearables has completely changed part of the market. And so now you've got Best Buy, who's got a chief, you know, healthcare officer. Best Buy. So think about, I mean, that's really changing and disrupting what is happening in retail, right? So I think wearables has been great. I think where you're getting other technology is there's a company called Apricia Pharmaceuticals that has been a client of ours. They do 3D printing of drugs. That's amazing, right? Because you can do small batches of things for orphan diseases that before were inefficient, and you can now print those very efficiently, not waste any of the active ingredient. So I think 3D printing for prosthetics, for, you know, so I think 3D printing in healthcare, I'm extremely uh, bullish on any of that. I think that really could add a lot to healthcare. I think if you're staying within the payer, you know, you're talking about mostly, Jonah, the, the payer provider space, I haven't seen a lot of great innovation. Um, you know, the the big innovation has been smart homes, but we really don't have the promise of that yet. We've talked about personalized medicine. We have a little bit of that new technology in diagnostics. Um, so there's, there's starting to be snippets of it here and there. And then I think if you think about anything that's implantable, so completely different, right? So pacemakers, you know, smart pacemakers and things like that. So I think that is purely technology, but I think that has been really different. So I do think it's making lots Technology is really helping and being very innovative in a lot of places in healthcare in the payer provider space, much harder. Yeah. So when we're talking about providing care, when we're talking about 
stepping into the role that's filled right now by hospitals and doctor's offices. Um, and it's not as if there isn't uh, disruption and innovation happening in that space, right? You look at One Medical itself and those concierge practices, there are a lot of them that have sprung up fairly recently, you know, urgent care clinics, minute clinics, the CVS, you know, we have, we are as a society kind of changing the way we give and, and, and receive care, especially sort of like frontline urgent care, primary care, but those solutions aren't coming from big tech. Right. So here, so here's what I think. There's, there's a structural shift. There's been a structural shift in insurance that went from PPOs and low deductible to high deductible plans. That shift has taken about 15 years. As we've moved to high deductible plans, it has opened the door for somebody to come in with cash access health services. So those are people that are in the gig economy, are underinsured, meaning they have a $5,7500 deductible. They're never going to hit the end of that deductible in a year. That's good RX with cash cards. That's our, we have a company called Visory Health also in that space with low cost. Um, we have apps and all kinds of things, but for low cost pharmaceuticals. But that's in the cash market. And that's a little bit of the space where one medical plays in this cash market. So they do have some employer health, but it's also could be concierge. So, but that's a structural change in the insurance market that is creating this opportunity for entrepreneurs to come in and start shifting health services toward cash. Now, what has happened to hospitals is for 20 years, everything that's innovated that was once done in a hospital that could be moved away from a hospital has happened. So hospitals have lost more and more profitable services to entrepreneurs, right? So 20 years ago, we didn't have freestanding surgical centers. We didn't have freestanding GI centers. We didn't have all these things go retail. So you're going to see more and more of that. And it gets as it gets further away from the hospitals, less expensive. And you can also shrink the footprint. You don't have to have all the overhead, which makes it more efficient. So I do see some of those things happening. But I think those are very long trends that have been happening over you know a 10-year period or longer. I don't see those as sort of new or disruptive uh, but it does leave it does leave open for these tech companies to come in and try to figure out. So wh- where's the gap there, and how can we fill it? Right, but even that is never going to lead to kind of end to end healthcare or or health insurance. Yeah. So we're kind of coming to the end of time. I, I wanted to ask: Is there are there any pieces of this puzzle we haven't talked about that that are important to you, or that you think are important? Um, and and a little bit about you know. What do you think kind of the future holds around, you know, this sort of innovation around care? I think what the future holds is more and more people, people are very engaged in their care, their own care. I think wearables makes people very aware of their health status and what is happening in our culture is so there's this huge divide now. It's a digital divide between sort of people that are healthy and health focused and people that are probably have a lot of health issues, including our obesity epidemic. And I think that's going to continue to grow. So I think one of the things that the digital divide does is it grows. The one place I will tell you, I feel like we are making headway slowly that I think is really encouraging is mental health and technology. So there are mental health apps out there to help people. There's telemedicine to help people now for mental health. I think that's a place where it has been decimated. That whole area has been decimated by what has happened with state law and the and the payers and employers not wanting to fund mental health services. So mental health services have really declined over years. And now I see entrepreneurs really stepping into that space for mental health and really helping to connect people. So I think that is really encouraging. So I think for those areas of healthcare that maybe are stigmatized, are hard to talk about, 
are hard to go in and see somebody, I think we can do that in a different way and deliver that care in a different way and still connect with the patient. So I think connecting the patient will look very different to your point, Jonah, you mentioned this, but I think that's going to look really different in the future than what it looks like right now. Yeah. And I mean, it's, we, we've talked about some different tech here, but I, you know, we're talking of mental health and, and trying to just address that gap. Obviously, telehealth is a huge part, but we're also starting to see digital therapeutics, so so automated exactly. systems that sort of tackle the basic, uh, I think basic is the wrong word, some of the most common mental health uh, conditions, right? And biofeedback, right? There's apps now for biofeedback, which helps you if you have depression. There's going to be, I, I think we're going to see a lot of breakthroughs from that perspective. So I think that's really, really encouraging. So anything that's been stigmatized, anything that it's hard to find employees, those are the places that you want to try to digitize and technologize because we can't staff them. And that's one of the areas we can't staff any longer, right? So I think that's helpful too. And also, I guess the bottom of the risk funnel. I mean, we talked before about how these companies are not going after emergency rooms. You know, they're not going after the really high risk life or death. Which they should not. I would highly (laughs) encourage you to stay away from complex care. It's gotten the the payer issues on that. Uh, If you think about the federal government being 54% of the payer mix now, which means they pay for 54% of all the claims in the United States for Medicaid and Medicare. Uh, the government regulations around that are enormous. It's difficult to get paid correctly. Uh, so I do encourage them to stay in the retail cash market and dip their toe into insurance when they have to, but I would keep pushing this toward cash and retail. Any other advice besides kind of staying small and staying focused? No, I think it's just making sure that you, again, it's really basic. Bring the right people on the bus. Make sure that you have a technology guy or gal that's matched with somebody who actually knows it so you can reimagine it in a completely different way. The problem is if it's only technology people and you say, hey, look, I need you to think about prior authorizations in a different way. They don't even know what you're talking about, right? Because they don't really access the healthcare system because they're generally really young. (laughs) So they not only do they not have professional experience, they may not have personal experience with the healthcare system yet. So just make sure that you're really combining that with people that actually know how this works. And then I would really put a strenuous process in place to reimagine sort of these touch points along the, the way. And I think I think we can have some success in that. I think we're just not seeing it yet. I think now we're seeing learnings. I think these big companies are jumping in, learning, jumping out, and then jumping back in. And that's sort of Amazon's story right now. Awesome. Thank you so much, Susan. It's really been a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you, Jonah. I loved it. Take care. That concludes this episode of the Pharma Forum podcast. You can find more information about this episode, including a download link and information about other installments in the series at pharmaforum.com podcast. The Pharma Forum podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher, and Podme, where you can find and subscribe by searching for Pharma Forum. And don't forget to visit our website where you can sign up for daily news and analysis bulletins and to follow us on Twitter at at Thanks for listening.